went out walking through streets paved with gold lifted some stones saw the skin and bones of a city without a soul i stopped outside a church house where the citizens like to sit they say they want the kingdom but they don't want god in it yeah i went with nothing nothing but the thought of you i went wandering Live from the Mecca of Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter, where Mormonism meets Biblical Christianity face-to-face, and I'm your host, Sean McCraney. If you have family or friends who can't watch the show through any of the avenues available, please have them go to hotm.tv. They can watch it streaming video from anywhere in the world. We welcome our YouTube viewers, our streaming audience, our live audience, our cable and dish, our broadcast audiences. Uh, You're not going to believe this. Heart of the Matter is growing leaps and bounds because of you and your prayers, your support. We thank you so much. We, in our live studio audience today, we have a, a great group. I don't think we can pan it tonight, but a great group from Western Samoa. So uh, it's awesome to see people from all over the world and to have them here. Uh, I thought I would, because we're going through church history, begin with uh, some highlight moments from the history of the church, and uh, just little segments with each show. On December 15th of 1859, Brigham Young allowed people who were practicing polygamy to obtain divorce. Sounds pretty magnanimous of Brigham, doesn't it? 1,600 couples came forward to take advantage of this great allowance he offered them, but Brigham put a little catch to it all. Anyone who was going to have this divorce had to pay Brigham $10. The total amount Brigham received in uh, allowing divorce, $16,000 in 1859. That would be the equivalent today of $423,000 423,200, $423,200, just to kind of just put it about how that business works. All right, three weeks ago, we had a caller call in defending the Book of Mormon. He claimed that God loved the people in the Americas so much that he provided them with a Book of Mormon, just like he provided the people from the old world the Bible. I asked him why there were no other Book of Mormon type books in other countries since God loves the people of Western Samoa and and the British Isles and Russia and China as much too. And the caller said, in time, in time. Well, he was exactly right. Someone emailed me with information on another sacred book that was translated for the people of the British Isles. It's true. This guy claims that an angel of the Lord came and knocked on his door and handed him a set of plates, which he, calling himself a prophet, translated. We have a little video to actually show the translator, who he calls, us, who calls himself a prophet, 
believes in the Book of Mormon and, and has these plates. He's a little difficult to understand because of his uh, kind of heavy sort of cockney accent that he has. But listen closely. Let's roll that tape. people that are allowed to see the plates are those that the Lord gives instruction to see them. We have them still here, they're, they're still here uh, under lock and key um, and we're not afraid to, to let people know about that. Um, but I don't want any emails asking us, you know, can we see the plates, can we see a picture, can we see a photograph, because it's not going to happen until the Lord says to me, um, this person can see this person can't and that, that's how it stays there's nobody going to see the plates that the Lord doesn't want to see so that's how we came into possession of the plates as I say they, they weren't as some of the stories go they weren't found in the boot of a car they weren't found in the car seat they weren't they, they weren't picked up off the street one day um, they were picked up they were delivered to our door we have them here and as long as we prayed about them as long as we prayed about it they made a commitment to this church and the Lord says they can. There's nothing to hide here. We've had our persecutors before, people making up false copies of the plates, uh, showing them around, people making up false boxes, showing them around, people making up stupid, ridiculous stories like, oh, we got into the car one morning and they're on the, on the car seat. Absolute nonsense. Try to knock this story down. But the same can be said about Joseph Smith. I mean, people said he spent, I don't know, was it two years on the, on, in the, the Hill Camorra knocking these plates out. Uh, it's just absolutely ludicrous. People are going to believe what they want to believe. But uh, I, I bear my testimony to you that they are real. I have handled them and so are the people. And um, they are an ancient record of the former inhabitants of British Isles. Testimony that they are real. <laughs> they are the former inhabitants of the British Isles. <laughs> now, I want to know from the LDS people out there, he says in other videos that if you pray about this book you will come to know by the Spirit that it is true and there are people who have read his translation of the book of Jeranak and have discovered it to be true that Raphael the angel did truly give him plates and that it truly is the Word of God I want to know LDS callers please call tonight 801-973-TV20 801-973-8820 call tonight and tell us why you can't trust this prophet over in England who has bleached hair like me and glasses. Why you can't trust this guy, but you trust Joseph's story. I want to know. Please call and tell us. Well, I think we, uh, you know, I started off tonight. Actually, I started off presenting this stuff. And I, I happen to, I get a little bit um, sarcastic and a little bit funny, but I have had a weight upon me as I've looked through this thing that I'm going to talk to you about now. And it really isn't funny, but it, it is amazing. Um, doctrinally, Mormonism states in the Doctrine and Covenants section 42 that murder, killing, cannot be forgiven. The blood of Jesus cannot uh, save you if you are a murderer. In fact, what it says is, quote, Joseph Smith speaking and says God is speaking through him. And now behold, I speak unto the church, thou shalt not kill. 
And he that kills shall not have forgiveness in this world, nor in the world to come. Again I say, thou shalt not kill, for he that killeth shall not be forgiven. Just to let you know, in the same section, 42, adultery is forgiven for the first offense, but it says, if he doeth it again, he shall not be forgiven, but be cast out. So you get two shots at adultery, one for murder, and Jesus' blood cannot cover those things. If you go two on adultery, one murder, it's over. You will not enter into the celestial kingdom. A recent event, though, proves that Mormonism may be changing in this regard. On May 8th of 2008, an active temple recommend holder of the church, a male, entered into the Jordan River Temple and did the vicarious temple work, meaning he was baptized and received the LDS endowment ceremony for and on behalf of one Theodore Robert Cowell. Now, according to the LDS ordinance record, family search, the Robert Cow was born, let me see, he was born on the 24th of November in 1946 in Burlington, Chittenden, Vermont. He, was, he died on the 24th of January, 1989 in Florida. He had his uh, LDS ordinances done in the temple on May 28, 2008 at the Jordan River Temple. Uh, this person, Robert Cowell, is also known as Theodore Bundy. Ted Bundy, the prolific serial killer, sadistic rapist, and torturer of who knows how many innocent women. It seems that in 1974, while he was murdering women, while he was murdering women, Ted Bundy moved to the Mecca of Mormonism, and evidence supports very strongly that he actually joined the LDS Church. The internet reports about his religion always state he is or was Mormon. Uh, I wonder if the mission president who interviewed him for baptism had the spirit tell him that he was worthy for this ordinance. Anyway, I guess he wasn't very active, at least not in saving souls, and it appears his name and baptismal records were removed from the membership rolls as soon as it was found out he was a criminal and was convicted. But in light of his recent temple ordinances being done, maybe the church is softening on their doctrinal stance about murderers these days. Maybe they really are starting to embrace the idea that Jesus' blood is sufficient to cover any crime. LDS, again, any thoughts on this? Now, remember, somebody, possibly the one who submitted Bundy's name for temple ordinance work, went through the Jordan River Temple as Ted Bundy. And I wonder if, after the ordinance work was done, they said, you know, I, am just, I just sense that, that, that Theodore Bundy is so happy now to have received these vicarious ordinances beyond the grave. The woman who discovered this just spoke with me about it. Her name's Helen Radke. She's also the woman who found out that the LDS was baptizing Holocaust victims and reported it to the news, and the LDS kind of squirmed their way out of it, but were found out to be lying. Now, when we talked about these Holocaust uh, victims being posthumously baptized by the LDS church, a number of LDS people called and or wrote in, and they said, what's the big deal? You know, if you don't believe what we're doing, that's fine, but it doesn't hurt anybody, does it? The, the, how does our baptism for the dead 
hurt anybody at all. Why don't you leave us alone and let us practice our religion? Well, in this case, there are people, and I say this with a great deal of respect, in Utah in 1974, on October 2nd, Nancy Wilcox, 16 years old, disappeared from holiday. Her body was never found because of Ted Bundy. And on October 18th, Melissa Smith, 17, vanished from Midvale, Utah, after leaving a pizza parlor. On October 35th, Laura Amy, 17, disappeared from a Halloween party in Lehigh. Uh, Ruth Don Ranch, Ranch survived escaping Bundy's car and went on to report who he was. It was this evidence that got him. Deborah Kent, 17, vanished from the parking lot of her high school in Bountiful and hours after Bundy tried to get Ranch. Shortly before his execution, Bundy confessed to investigators that he dumped Kent near a site in Fairview, Utah. Uh, all they could find in that area was her kneecap. And finally, on June 28th, Susan Curtis, 15 years old, disappeared while walking alone in the dor from the dorm dormitories at a youth conference at Brigham Young University in Provo, Utah. Her body was never found. I have a 15-year-old daughter. It makes me sick that these people think that they can continue to baptize whoever they want to baptize and just, and, and just willy-nilly tramp on Holocaust victims, tramp on the, the families who have survived what Bundy has done. He did not die a repentant man. He didn't cry to Jesus and, be, and, and ask for forgiveness. And so they do these things, and yet at the same time, they justify them hook, line, and sinker. Terrible stuff. All right, uh, going on, just to let you know our... Um, Sleuth Brandy, who has given us other information in the past, uh, has shown uh, another evidence that the Praise the Man deal is up and running again. Let's turn to that if we can. I think we have a picture of that taken by, do we have that ready? We don't have that ready. All right, well, our Sleuth Brandy provided us with a picture, another billboard praising the man right off the freeway. And all I got to ask you is, what are we praising him for? Are we praising him for the, the kind of father and husband he was? Are we praising him for looking into a hat and speaking for God with a magic stone? I mean, even in the Christian community, somebody who you might think deserves praise, Billy Graham, Chuck Smith, uh, Moody, uh, uh, Luther, Cal, any of these Christian icons, a Christian would never think to, to say, praise that man, praise the man. It just doesn't happen. And yet again today, we have signs on the I-15 say, praise to the man. What are you praising him for? Uh, it really what it does is you have to ask yourself, why aren't we praising you as well? And is that kind of built in? Are you seeking to get to the level where you would be praised? Is that what this invokes? Doesn't praising one man sort of say that God is a respecter of persons? Is, doesn't praising one man uh, say that you, your works are really not sufficient or your, the things you're doing are really not comparable? This guy has really done so much more. Let me give you an example of how I, I see um, how God qualifies and quantifies us as people relative to the things that we do in this life. Think about a square for a minute. It has four corners, 
okay? Four corners and four equal distances, top, bottom, sides, all equal. Equidistant, four corners, that is a square. God asked some, some people to, to have a square that is this big. But as long as they have the square, that is his requirement, then he is so pleased, just as pleased as somebody who has a square that's this big or somebody that has a square that's the size of a postage stamp or the size of a swimming pool. Somebody who has a square that's, uh, that fits within the size of the United States still has four corners, two equal sides, two equal top and bottom. They have the square. It is not the quantity. That is men's thinking when they start assigning praise to people for what they do. God's thinking is, do you have what I have requested from you? This size square or a square the size of the United States or that fits in the United States are of equal value to God. But when you have signs that say praise to the man, it completely discounts that whole idea. If you think about it, just think about it. Don't, doesn't that occur? Doesn't that occur in your mind when you think of Joseph? Let's have a prayer and begin tonight's topic. Lord, we love you and we need you. Need you on the set tonight. Bless our audience members, wherever they may be. Uh, help me to uh, share what I need to share. And if it's not right, let it just fall on deaf ears. But let your word go out and that people will turn to you as their source of salvation and no one else. In Jesus' name, amen. Growing up in the LDS church, it didn't take long for me to see that there were a few standards or yardsticks by which the blessedness or spiritual stature of a person or their family was measured by the general uh, active membership of the church. The more of these standards that exist in your life and the stronger they are in your home, the more stalwart, blessed, worthy, or choice you and your family are when viewed by other Latter-day Saints. Some of the most prevalent yardsticks or measurements in no, one, no particular order include your family name or your family ancestry. Are you a Hinckley? Are you a Monson? These things are important. Also as important is your dedication to the church. The more fervent you are dedicated to the church, you and your family, the more stalwart you are seen. But the positions you hold, the higher positions, the lower positions is important. Are you married? And even more importantly, have you been married in the temple? The mission that you served, the conformity you exhibit toward doctrine and culture, the education you possess, the higher the better, how much wealth you have, the more the better, the occupation you have, the whiter the collar, the better. And the temple recommend, do you hold one or not? One of the biggest measuring sticks for the state of Mormon blessedness is the success or failure families uh, have in these areas. It's one thing for an individual man or woman to have attained personal church status, but it's a giant feather in the cap of a Mormon family to have all the little ones grow up and be just as stalwart or faithful. The late LDS prophet David O. McKay once said, quote, no success can compensate for failure in the home, end quote. Try and remember this phrase as we look at the fate of the children of Joseph Smith Jr. and Emma. It's interesting when it comes to the children of Joseph Smith, nobody really ever says very much, especially within the rank and file of Mormondom. How come? I mean, isn't Mormondom all about families? 
And if this is so, why is the family of the man that they praise, Joseph Smith, rarely, if ever, discussed? How do the LDS today explain the lives and spiritual paths the founding prophet's children took? I mean, in terms of allegiance to the church, no couple gave more to building the church or then or now than Joseph and Emma Smith. Wouldn't the Lord have blessed them with children who would have followed the prophet Brigham Young out to Utah? How come Joseph's own children did not follow their father's Mormonism? Are they in hell? Are they sons of perdition? Or are they pulled up into the celestial glory just because their dad was the prophet? As we've mentioned, Joseph Smith Jr., the prophet, left four children behind when he died. One was born five months later. Julia, an adopted daughter, was 15 at the time. Joseph III was 13. Frederick was eight. Alexander was six, and David came along last. In 1849, when she was 18, Julia married an attractive traveling entertainer named Elisha Dixon, not a Latter-day Saint. Hmm. Uh, Emma had Dixon take over operating the Nauvoo house for about three years until his health began to fail, and doctors told Julia and her husband that they should move to the south. Julia and Alicia moved to Texas, where he found work as a bookkeeper on a steamboat. In 1853, the boiler on the steamboat exploded and blew Alicia into the burning ash pan of the vessel, nearly cooking him alive. He writhed in agonizing pain for three weeks, and then he died. Julia returned to Nauvoo, a widow at 23. She fell in love with one John Middleton, who grew in time to be a horrible alcoholic. They moved to St. Louis, Missouri, where John worked half-heartedly as a clerk for the mining company. In the 1870s, Emma summarized Julia's existence with this, quote, Poor Julia has a trying life, end quote. I'm not completely certain how Julia's life ended up. Frederick, Joseph and Emma's second oldest son, Joseph III was the first, lived a life in typical 19th century rural America. He roamed the woods and anytime he found a chance to escape the tough life of work that he had to endure. He never had any interest in the religious activities of his father, unlike his brother Joseph III and his youngest brother David. In fact, Frederick and Alex were frankly horrified when Joseph III accepted the position of prophet of the reorganized LDS church in 1859. The boys had struggled for 15 years to make peaceful existence in Nauvoo. They had heard all the stories of the Mormons while hunting and fishing and working the land with the locals and had great difficulty hearing that their elder brother was going to throw his hat, minus the seer stones, into the religious arena and accept the title of prophet, seer, and revelator of the RLDS church. But Frederick loved his older brother, Joseph III, and accepted his right to religious liberty. Frederick married one Anna Marie Jones and fathered a daughter by her. In the fall of 1861, around Christmas time, Joseph III heard that Frederick had some health problems and he rode out of town on his horse to see him on his farm. There he found Frederick very, very ill and all alone. His wife had abandoned him, taking their three-year-old child and giving, getting back to her parents. There was no fire in the house, no wood to be burned, no food, and not even any potable water. There lay the prophet's son, hungry, cold, and abandoned and dying by his wife. Praise to the man. 
Joseph III took care of Frederick's immediate needs and called on his mother, Emma, who came and cared for him for the rest of the winter and spring. This is the same Emma who Brigham Young called the most wicked, wicked woman on earth. But Frederick died on April of 1862 at 26 years old. Now, I admit that this might be a bit of a stretch, but I see the four Smith boys as representing specific aspects of their father's complex psychological, physical, and spiritual makeup. At the same time, and in some mystical and inexplainable ways, unexplainable ways, I also see them as seeming to have paid for the sins of their father. Unlike their dad, who collected friends and wives for eternity, Frederick was left cold and alone at a very young age with his family completely abandoning him, not only for eternity, but when he needed them most. Alexander Smith, the third youngest son, seemed, from what I've read, to be kind of like the Esau of the Smith brothers. He was a man's man, even-tempered, strong, and capable, a hard worker, where Joseph III would accept the mantle of prophet, and Frederick died early and alone. Alexander sort of embodied the pragmatic, straight-shooting aspects of Joseph Smith Jr. Uh, was well known to possess. To me, Alex was what his father would have been if he had refused the early trappings of folk magic, manipulation, and megalomania, and had just accepted the role of a man committed to following Jesus. Having once rejected his older brother's place as the prophet of the reorganized church, Alex, after Frederick died, accepted membership into the RLDS through baptism. He was then drafted into the Union Army, but the Civil War was over before he saw any action. Alex returned home to Nauvoo, became a farmer, and was called to be the president of the Nauvoo branch of the RLDS. Author Valine Tibbetts Avery described Alex Smith as stocky with an athletic build. He was slow to anger, and he usually reacted with reason and calmness to the vicissitudes of life, except in the charged emotional climate surrounding his father's reputation. Alex was asked by his prophet brother Joseph III to travel to California and oversee the RLDS mission there. Word got, word got around that he was coming through Utah, and when he did, certain measures were taken by the Utah Saints to thwart any efforts Alexander might take to sway the people who were under Brigham's rule. He spent 15 days in Utah before traveling on to California, but while here, he entered into a public debate with his cousin, Joseph F. Smith, who was sent by Brigham Young to, quote, speak against him. A witness reported that Alexander listened to Joseph Smith speak, and then Alexander delivered, quote, one of the worst castigations I have ever seen a person receive, end quote. We have no record of what Alex actually said, but we can be sure that he got uncharacteristically heated. Brigham Young maintained a distance from Alex during this first trip to Utah, probably due to the fact that Alex was not considered a child of promise or one who Joseph Smith Jr., the founder of Mormonism, told would be a leader in his church. Joseph Smith told his oldest son, Joseph Smith III, and he told his youngest son before he was born to Emma and to others that this son, David, was going to be a great ruler and leader. These two sons were children of promise, but Alex was not, so Brigham Young probably avoided talking to him.
1868, Alex returned to Utah with his younger brother David and met with Brigham Young and 19 other LDS notable men like George Q. Cannon, John Taylor, Joseph F. Smith, Phineas Young, Brigham Young's brother, in a meeting. Alex and David now were there to request the use of the tabernacle to hold a public meeting. Brigham Young ignored their request, but instead he demanded a retraction from Alex for his harsh words that he spoke during his first visit to Utah. The conversation turned into a confrontation between Alex and Brigham Young with both people using Emma as the tool. When we come back, we'll talk about what happened in that discussion and then and complete what happened with the Smith boys. See you in just a minute. Hi, right, we're back. The conversation between Alex and Brigham Young centered on Emma uh, either being slandered or hailed in front of everybody who was present, including the tender-hearted and artistic boy, David. Where Alex claimed to have complete confidence in the words of his mother, Brigham said she was a liar, the damnedest liar that ever lived, end quote. This caused the young and poetic David to jump into the fray in her defense. And he said, quote, you might as well try and rub silver off the moon as to attempt to destroy the purity of my mother's character. That's really poetic. Hearing of the confrontation, the Herald newspaper wondered out loud and sarcastically about the Christian spirit of one Brigham Young. At one point in the battle, someone in the room said to the Smith boys, we love you boys for your father's sake. This irritated Alexander, who was obviously tender about who he was as a man in relation to his father, who was nearly worshipped in absentia. He replied, quote, that makes no impression upon me. I expect to live long enough to make a name for myself and have the people of God love me for my own sake. Hearing this, Brigham Young, with even more vitriol, seethed, a name, a name, a name. You have not got God enough in you to make a name. You are nothing at all like your father. He was open and frank and outspoken, but you, there is something covered up, something hidden, calculated to deceive. Hearing this, Alexander challenged Young to a debate. You quote, you say you have the truth. What need do you have to fear? He challenged. You are men full of vigor of mind and reason. We are but boys. If it is as you say, you can easily overcome us if we are in the wrong. But if it proves that we are in the right, the sooner you get right, the better. The debate Alex was challenging uh, the Utah leaders to was a debate about polygamy. Did their father practice it and was it taught as doctrine or not? Sitting behind the comfort of our homes and high-speed connections and our resources like utlm.org, it's very easy for us to see that the believing, trusting sons of Joseph Smith Jr. were wrong about their father. They didn't have the facts and the evidence that we have in front of us today. But back then, the three surviving Smith boys were blighted by a relentless cacophony of lies, cover-ups, and doctrinal deceptions carried out by everyone they knew. 
the mother who they loved and trusted, and who evidenced no reason not to be loved and trusted, had lied to them. So had their own father and uncle Hiram, so did the records of Nauvoo. The RLDS, under the leadership of the elder brother, had firmly taken a stance that polygamy was never part of Joseph Smith's life, and now, empowered by the very words of their own father and uncle, Alexander and David were set out in Utah to prove the Brighamites wrong. Says Tibbetts, quote, David and Alexander's case that their father had not established polygamy in Nauvoo rested on events that were also accepted by the Utah church. The Smith brothers accurately pointed out that the date of the, quote, pretended revelation in favor of polygamy was July 12, 1843, presented in Illinois, but that it was not published until nine years later in September of 1852 in Utah. To the boys, it seemed obvious that Brigham had fabricated the revelation and attributed it to their innocent and pure father. Quote, to further cloud the matter, Tibbetts Avery writes, the Smith boys argued that Joseph and Hiram Smith had printed a notice in the Times and Seasons newspaper in Nauvoo denying that they had received any such revelation about polygamy. The same article pointed out that in April of 1844, Hiram Smith, addressing elders leaving on a mission, emphatically denied the doctrine and forbade the preaching of it. Nothing the Smith's boys were saying could be denied by the Brighamites or the Utah leadership. Their father and uncle had publicly denied and renounced polygamy. This led the Smith's sons to believe that it was Brigham Young who was the liar. A reporter for the newspaper out of Corinne, Utah, pointedly argued that the Utah church was in a real predicament here. Because if the Utah Mormons were able to prove to the Smith boys that they were wrong and that polygamy was practiced by their father before Utah was established, it would simultaneously prove that their father and Hiram were also inveterate liars. The confrontation forced Joseph F. Smith of the Utah church into a corner and he then reacted publicly. The Corinne newspaper reported that in order to prove the sons of the prophet Joseph Smith wrong, Joseph F. Smith of the Utah Church stood up to prove his own father, Hiram, a liar. The reporter then commented, and I must add, he succeeded in doing it. But the Brighamite Joseph F. Smith didn't stop there. He helped nail the whole impression of these boys' mother to the cross by publicly blaming the death of their father on her and her alone. After retelling how Joseph and Hiram came to Carthage jail and were murdered there, he said publicly, and quote, and the blame rests on that woman, their mother, Emma Smith. Alex and David Smith returned to the Nauvoo area uncertain of what they thought or believed. Alex resigned himself to a life in support of the RLDS doctrines and practices and even continued to debate theological issues on occasion. He seemed to possess the uncanny ability to rationalize facts of faith and live with a mutant belief system of blind allegiance. Joseph Smith III, prior to leading the reorganized LDS church as the prophet worked as a lawyer, married a Methodist girl, not LDS, named Emily Griswold, fathered children, and worked hard at establishing the RLDS as a viable continuation of what he believed his father stood for. People claimed he healed the sick, received revelations from God, and accepted the Book of Mormon as true. Joseph Smith III seemed to embody the administration 
administrative mind of his father, as well as the ability to take his personal thoughts and call them revelations from God. But David, the youngest son, was not about to escape the sins of his father so easily. It seems the dissonance of the deception, the loss of his foundation, and the fragile nature of his poetic mind took their toll. To me, while bearing the full brunt of his father's ways, he seemed to ironically be the most intellectually honest of the boys and would suffer greatly as a result. Next week, we'll conclude with the story of David Smith, the youngest son of Joseph Smith, which to me brings much uh, to the mystery of the life of his father. Let's go to the phones, 801-973-TV20, 801-973-8820. Remember, first-time callers if possible, LDS callers always. And when you get the, to the phone, be ready to talk. We can't wait for you to turn down your TV sets. So let's go to uh, Karen Houston in Texas on line two. Karen, you're on Heart of the Matter. Thanks, Sean, for taking my call. Okay, I'm going to be really brief. I have a question. Okay. Uh, my family's Mormon. I'm... Uh, former, born-again ex-Mormon, and I'm becoming a mature Christian, and I'm getting all fired up about witnessing, especially to my family members, and I'm memorizing Bible verses, and mostly because of you, you've really helped me, but I, I don't, what I don't understand is the writings of Paul, which is mostly the whole New Testament, what do Mormons think of that? I mean, do they, is Paul an apostle? Do they consider him apostle? Do they totally, will they roll their eyes at the epistles of Paul, do they... It's a, it's a great question, and I guess it's going to depend on uh, the individual members, but they do uh, accept Paul's writings. They just interpret them differently. They uh, see them through the rose-colored glasses of, glasses of Mormon doctrine, and so therefore when Paul says one thing, they interpret it differently. So while they don't reject Pauline epistles, and they do receive the Bible uh, as the Word of God so far as it's translated correctly, they do interpret what he says not through um, an exegetical, good sound hermeneutic of the Word and a study of the language, uh, Hebrew and Greek and all that. They just look at it and says it says this, we think it means this, and they go with it that way. Yeah, because pretty much all religion is opposed to all of Paul's writings. Yeah. Am I right? Yeah. Okay. All right, that helps a little bit. And uh, can I make two quick comments? Sure. Okay, I was reading in Hebrews. You got me reading Hebrews. And I found um, in Hebrews 1 where God addresses Jesus as God. Oh. There, several times in uh, the first chapter of Hebrews. Isn't that beautiful? Yes, I loved it. And another quick thing. Sometimes I go and I read the Enzyme online just to kind of keep up with what's going on in Mormondom. Uh -huh. There's something called a mother's heart, developing a mother's heart. Are you familiar with this? Uh, no, what does it have to do with? Well, I think it's like a big uh, campaign for young women in Relief Society. Just about every woman, whether she's you know, single, not married, infertile, adoptive mother, whatever, 12-year-old, uh, developing a mother's heart. It seems to be like a big thing for them. Huh. But to me, that just didn't sit with me. And I would say a Christian would hear that and think there's something wrong with that because we... Uh, want to develop a heart after Christ's heart. Yeah. And it, it just, it's so bizarre. They really seem to be pushing this. It's so really I, good that you see the difference between that, Karen. Uh, yeah. It's yeah. shocking to me. Yeah. They probably think it's beautiful, but to a Christian, it's so shocking. Yeah. Everything built on this idea and image of family instead of Christ. Right. So, yeah. yeah. Hey, thank you so much. I hope everything's well out in Texas. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye.
We're going to Michael in South Jordan. Michael, you're on Heart of the Matter. Yo, what are you, what are you reading there? And do you believe that the Revelations, the Book of Revelations, is coming into play at this moment in time? Uh, what was your first part of your question? What, what book are you reading from? And do you believe that the Book of Revelations is coming into play at this time? I think the book of Revelation has been in play. I think much of what it talks about there has happened. And I think there are many things that will continue to happen. And the book I have in front of me is the Bible. But what I do is I take my notes, my preparation for the show, and I put it in my Bible just to be able, to, for convenience sake, to have it right here. Does that help? Yeah, uh, you're invited for dinner down in South Jordan if you'd like. I'm invited for dinner? Yeah, man. I'm, I make a wonderful spaghetti. <laughs> All right, I look forward to it. We'll talk sometime. Uh, you should. You should call me. We should. We should talk. You really should. You should really talk to me. I tell you, <laughs> you you're a very brave man. <laughs> uh, brave or stupid, right, Michael? No, you're very brave. Thank very brave. I'll talk to you later. All right, sir. Bye bye. I feel like I'd be a really brave man if I had dinner with Michael, but I'm not sure. <laughs> um, we're going to Miguel, West Valley City, on line one. Miguel, you're on Heart of the Matter. How you doing, John? Good. How are you? I'm having trouble hearing audio okay. people. Okay. Let me just tell you really quickly, um, out of respect for you and out of respect for the families of, of, the, of the victims of Ted Bundy, yeah. Ted Bundy did um, have an interview with Dr. James Dobson, Yeah. and from what I heard, he did say a sinner's prayer. So uh, hopefully, you know, hopefully that's true. Hopefully it was sincere and and, uh, you know, it's kind of hard for us as humans to, to think that somebody like that can be forgiven. But, uh, you know, God does forgive um, our hearts. You know, we, we're, our hearts are deceitfully uh, wicked. So, um, yeah. you know, and like I said, out of respect for the families of those victims. But, you, you know, you said earlier that he didn't cry out to, to Jesus. And, but that, that's what I heard. Yeah, the lady who I talked with, Helen uh, Radke, she... She uh, told me that she, from what she had understood, he actually became a, a, a Buddhist or a Hindu. So I'm not sure. That's why I, did, I, I just equivocate on it. I don't see anything that says definitively he was one way or the other. Well, no, but I'm talking about this is his last interview before he was killed. Yeah, still, I or still don't. Not I, killed, but, you know, the capital punishment, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, I still haven't seen anything, Miguel, that actually s says, yeah, he did, he was, this is, and so... Uh, but if you can find it, give me the quote, the reference. That's reliable. We'll go from there. Okay, cool. Thanks, thanks, thanks man. God bless, man. Bye-bye. Operators, call, uh, check in lines. We have some emails. Um, this is from Mary A. She says, how do you compare the free gift of salvation, no obligation, just a free gift, Christ paid the price, to living in America with its attendant freedoms? We are free in America, but we have obligations even though we are free citizens. You state that Mormons have a long list of do's, uh, to-dos to get to heaven, and it looks like a long list to be free as Americans. I'm not sure if I'm articulating this correctly, but I hope you understand the point I'm getting to. And I would say this is a very uh, difficult and loaded question to try to address, but I think, of it as the, I think of it this way, Mary. The freedom America offers is conditional. Um, if you break American laws, you are going to lose American freedoms. Okay, the opposite is true. The free gift of salvation through Christ is unconditional because it, and it's because we break God's laws that we don't have the ability to do it on our own. And this is what makes Jesus the only answer. So 
The difference alone between the two in those two ways negates the comparison. It's, it's really natural to make earth to heaven comparisons to try to make us understand things more easily and to give us dimension to tough concepts. But every time we try to do that, it ends up lacking and errant and in some way does not hold water. God's ways are unbelievably different than ours. And so for him to come up with a system where it's free to be forgiven for things that we do, it doesn't seem even rational. But when you make the comparison, the freedoms of America and the attendant responsibilities we have as Americans and equate that with the salvation experience of a Christian, I don't think it holds water. Now, I know we're going to get emails that says, well, there is an attendant uh, uh, obligation as a Christian once you receive Christ. And I agree with that, but that is not the parallel that's being made. So I hope that answers your question. Uh, operator's still working. This, said, this says, Jake from Florida, why did Jesus need to come here and die? If God is almighty, why didn't he make up some other easier way? Um, Jake, you provide, there's a lot of great responses to this and um, none of which will do uh, justice in the short amount of time to answer them. But I believe if I can respond in some general terms and concepts, it might be beneficial, but it has to do with elements. And if we could sit down, we could talk about it. But God sending his son here, condescending and becoming flesh like us, involves a, a mixture and elements of love and of justice and of mercy and of fairness and a few other concepts that when he came and condescended and the fullness of the God had dwelt in him bodily and then he took on our sin as a innocent lamb, those elements of love and freedom and justice and fairness, they were met. If God had provided some other easier way like it's taken care of, then he would cease to be a God of fairness, justice, mercy, love, and all the things that we would expect a holy God to be. That is a roundabout answer, but specifically, I think I would fail miserably to tell you exactly why God sent, uh, why Jesus had to become. Entire books have been written on that subject. Uh, before I go to Todd and Boise, let's go to John who wrote, I was wondering if since I married an LDS woman who I love dearly and will forever, if the church will have a record on me. I have never been an LDS, never been to their meetings, whatever you want to call it, and I have been a Catholic and my wife and I are good with it. She questions her religion all the time and I told her the same, and she is told all the time the same, just pray. She gets no answers. Her family is pretty much staunch LDS, yada, yada, yada. The question is, what do I do to stop any records of me and make sure there is no baptism of me since I'm asking Jesus Christ for his forgiveness? Well, John, uh, first, talk to your wife. Uh, second, uh, you could write a letter to the church uh, headquarters and just request something in writing that it has been put on your, on your wife's records that you are not to have any vicarious ordinance work done for you when you pass on into the next world. That's probably the best that you can do, and it's not guaranteed. I really do think it's up to your wife if that's done or not. Okay, you're not going to be here to sue them if they do it. Let's go to Bo Todd in Boise on line two. Todd, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, Sean, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Good. Say, buddy, I was wondering where in doctrine does it teach that um, if your son or daughter were to leave the church, 
and you were to stay faithful to the church, they are also welcome into the celestial kingdom. Um, it was taught in uh, Joseph Smith, as, quote, as quoted by Orson Hyde, first of all, and it was, it, he taught that if, you, uh, if the parents of a family of wayward kids were faithful, like you said, uh -huh. then ultimately, after the kids paid the price for their sins and waywardness, the, the line is, don't deny the power of the ceiling. And it would be that those kids would come out and they would come up and join their families in the celestial realms. That was uh -huh. quoted by Boyd K. Packer later on in a general conference. Okay. And then... Boyd K. Packer, I can't give you the reference, but you can do a search. Uh, if you go on uh, uh, the LDS website and you type in um, children sealed to parents eternally and you do a search, the article will come up. And then it was also reiterated about four years ago by another elder in the church uh, at church conference. So they still teach that, and it gives great comfort to LDS parents who have put their nose to the grindstone, done everything the church says, and they've got a son who's a meth addict and who hates the church. They still believe because they were sealed and were faithful, that son will pay the price and then come and join them for the eternities. Right on. Hey, I was born again, and I got out of the religion, and it's just amazing to see all Amen. That. And it's just, uh, I'm working a lot with my Christian church, and it's amazing. Awesome. Um, Big difference, huh? Yeah, it's just, it's unreal. Yeah. Know? I feel that I don't, I don't really need to do much research anymore, except for um, topics like this that when it comes up with my family, so. That's really, it's, ni it's nice when you get released from not having to, you know, you get, you get involved in a relationship with Christ. Mormonism yeah. just kind of dies a, a death, doesn't oh, it? Oh, yeah, it's just, it's just amazing, a free, yeah. free spirit, so it's awesome. Thanks so much, Anyways, Todd. I appreciate your answer. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Yeah, We're going to Will in Virginia Beach. Will, you're on Heart of the Matter. Oh, thank you very much. You're welcome. Okay, uh, Sean, yeah, I've been watching your show lately, and um, I actually want to have a discussion with you, but I'm going to try to break it down into a question because I have a lot to say to you. Uh-oh. Oh, yeah, it's, it's, not, it's nothing bad. You know, I'm just uh, pretty open-minded when it comes to religion and stuff. Mm-hmm. So I was just wondering, um, I was watching your show the other day, and I, and I really doubt I can put this into a one-minute question, but I'm going to try. Okay, you got to be quick, though. Summarize it quickly, do the rest through an email, which I probably okay. won't get to for seven years. But Yeah, okay, cool. So I was wondering, um, you know, as far as, like, regarding the church and everything and the whole, you know, the LDS church? Yeah. And them not letting blacks hold the priesthood until 1978? Yeah. Um. I was uh, investigating other churches and stuff and seeing what they've done to black people as far as, like, a lot of Protestant churches being in the Klan and, you know, owning slaves. And, and you know, Mormons never did anything like that. I, I'm just wondering, uh, do you ever blast other churches for doing stuff like that and actually give credit to the LDS, to the LDS church for not doing it? or No, I don't in that respect. I'll tell you why. Because... I agree that Mormonism went the way of, uh, of what most society was doing in relation to the blacks in uh, uh, 17th, 18th, 19th century America. So yeah. uh, that doesn't make it right. The problem was is the Mormon church claims to be the only true church on the face of the earth. The Mormon church claimed that, uh, that if a black man and a black woman were found together, you were to kill them. 
The Mormon Church, Brigham Young claimed that if the Mormon Church ever let the blacks receive the priesthood, they would become a dark and loathsome and lose their power. And, so, and they did all this under the auspices of God telling them through revelation. Now, if there's a Baptist church with a bunch of rednecks down in Mississippi who hate black people in 1820 and they, and they lynch some, they're, they are going to stand before God and face his wrath like anybody else. And, and, but it wasn't Christianity that taught them that. It was the culture that did it. But Mormons say that God told them that. Do you see the difference? Yeah, I understand where you're coming from completely because the funny thing about it is that's actually where I'm from. And, um, and I had a lot of friends who, uh, you know, but actually when I would um, tell them this, it kind of blew their mind because if I would meet people who weren't from Mississippi, yeah. And I would tell them this, you know, because I actually been going to the LDS church because I'm kind of the exact opposite of you. I wasn't raised in the LDS church. Yeah. And I was watching pretty, pretty, like, pretty much my whole life until, up until the time I was a senior in high school, up until the time I was 18. Uh-huh. And I, I went to the Pentecostal church, and I saw all this stuff. And, um, you know, me, actually, I know you're saying about society and all, but while I was growing up, I, all the churches I went to were either all black and I never... And it was kind of, you know, there's not much interracial Christianity in the South. I mean, you might not know that, but right. I know what you're saying about the society and everything, but usually I hear people say a lot on TV, like the black church. I don't know what a black church is, but I hear people say that a lot, you know, like on TV and stuff. And now come to L.A. They yeah. got a lot of them. Yeah, so I'm just saying, but stuff like that is that, you know, I mean, and... Well, let, let me ask you a question, Will. I know okay. you have a lot of questions, but just on this topic... The okay. LDS taught uh, through many, Mark E. Peterson as late as 1956 taught, you know, the, I mean, blacks, it was just racially loaded stuff, okay? But you can okay. say it was cultural. But let me ask you this. They taught that it was because of a pre-existent state that they were fence sitters, that they didn't go with God's plans right off the bat, and therefore they weren't worthy to hold this priesthood. So in 1978, they come up, Spencer W. Kimball comes out and says, okay, they can hold the priesthood. I want to know why black kids are still born black today. I want yeah. to know why the curse that was supposedly put on them of black skin, by the way, why, they, why did the LDS say that people are still born black today if they are now worthy to receive all the blessings of the temple and the priesthood? Okay, okay, I understand where you're coming from. Yeah. You know, and... I don't have a direct answer for this for, for that specific topic, but what I also want to say was that the whole thing about, you know, they did do that, and it took them, I don't know why it took them until 1978 to convene that, but also what I was saying about the whole culture thing and the Klan and slavery, yeah. see, what gets to me about the LDS church is that it didn't, see, as far as slavery goes, and Christianity to me is everything, right? And I'm just saying that people who call themselves Christians should have known better. Yeah, they should have. Because all I'm saying is that if it wasn't for the Civil War, I, as a black guy, would still probably be a slave, and I would be owned by Christians. And Mormons never did that. If it wasn't for the Civil Rights Movement, many Protestants would still be lynching by people. So I'm actually proud to say that it didn't take all that for a, a Christian church, the one that I believe is a Christian church, the LDS church. I believe true Christianity would know stuff like that. You, you were, I would agree with you that the Christian, there's no excuse. There's no excuse for the Christian church and anybody who did. But I would disagree with you in saying the Mormon church never did anything with slavery. Brigham Young himself said slavery should happen. I mean, you got to read the writings of Brigham Young under slavery and oh, blacks. Oh, okay, I, I read the writings. 
Yeah, I mean, and, and, and I understand that you know, society back then it kind of like affected everybody. I never said Brooklyn Young was a perfect guy. If he said anything, if if anybody in the LDS church said anything negative about black people or anybody uh, of any other race, I call them racist like I would call it anybody else. Yeah, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that. It blows my mind for some people to not call other people Christians based on their past doings when, like, what this one church did is 50 times or even a million times worse than what the other church did. Yeah, I I understand your point, Will. I don't knock the church. uh, I I bring up their history of the blacks. I don't agree with it. I don't like it. But they've changed that. Good for them. But I don't. It's their doctrine that I'm against, and that is a whole other hundred and some odd shows. So, But I appreciate your comments. It's good. Let's dialogue. I got three other calls I got to get to. Okay, cool. Just, just call me back. Thanks, Will. All right. Bye-bye. All right, we're going to Jan in Salt Lake. Jan, you got one minute. Um, not, not a lot of time. No, not, not a lot. Okay, I've been watching you for a while, and uh, I'm, I'm very excited to talk to you. Um, uh, I, uh, I, was, I, uh, I grew up a Mormon. Yeah. And... Um, I converted to Catholicism two years ago, mm-hmm. and um, you remind me of uh, my sponsor. And I have since then, since I've been watching you, I have had a very difficult time um, having a normal sexual life with my husband. I am so attracted to you. Oh, this is over. I can't listen to this. Uh, let's go to Rick, please. Rick, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hello? Rick, are you there? Yeah. Go ahead, man. Please, say something. Oh, sorry, I didn't hear you. Uh, you're on the air. I got a quick question. First of all, I don't understand why you talk so much about Joseph Smith's sons. If you don't recognize him as a prophet, how can you think he's legitimate to spend that much time teaching about them? They're just as legitimate as anybody else is, right? I don't understand your point, ma'am. All right, one other thing. No, I didn't understand your point. <laughs> oh, you're you're a bad guy, too. All right, we're, uh, we're out of time. Uh, Rick in Smithville, Sherman in Salt Lake City, first-time callers. I'm really sorry. We are out of time. Uh, Tune in next week. We're going to cover David Smith, Joseph Smith's youngest son. And just to give you a primer, uh, he, uh, he was a very soft, kind, poetic young man who ended up uh, in 28 years in an insane asylum. And it bodes uh, well into the psychological makeup of his father. And a lot of the uh, uh, guesses about what made Joseph Smith say and do what he did. So we'll talk about it next week here on Heart of the Matter. Until then, God bless you, and we'll see you.
my rusty cage. 